Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode four of Mind the Teacher, a podcast miniseries that is looking at teachers' mental health and mental health of students and parents and teachers and everybody involved in public schools historically and, and especially during the pandemic. We know that teachers are critically important, one of the most important aspects of, of what makes a good school and what leads to a good education for students. And up until now, and especially in the last episode, we talked a lot about teachers' mental health and, and how teachers' mental health compares to professionals in other fields, and a little bit about how teachers' mental health has changed or been affected by the pandemic. Today, we're going to take another look at teachers' mental health through the lens of race and differences by race. And the motivation here is that there's a long history of racism and exclusion and segregation in U.S. public schools. And these longstanding historical forces had and continue to have an impact on the teacher labor force. In one direct realization of that is that the teaching force is disproportionately white. And another factor that we're going to talk about with our first guest today is how even though teachers of color and specifically black teachers are underrepresented, they also face unique challenges in schools and in the U.S. school system that likely affects their mental health and burnout, job stress, and, and possibly exiting the profession. For that discussion, we're going to be joined by Professor Travis Bristol of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Education. And we're going to talk to him about what we know and what we don't know and what we need to know about how teachers of color and specifically black teachers fare in the school system generally, but also how in many ways the pandemic has exacerbated the challenges that they were already facing. Another interesting thing I think that, that Dr. Bristol points out is that in some sense, the pandemic has sort of brought to light the challenges that historically marginalized groups have always faced and made them very salient and readily observable by mm -hmm. white families and white teachers. And so I think that's a really important discussion to have, and I look forward to talking to Dr. Bristol in a couple minutes. The other thing we're going to talk about, which my co-host uh, Steve can speak more to, is what do we know about how families in general have been affected by the pandemic? And what are we going to learn there, Steve? Right. So we're not just interested in teachers and teachers' mental health, but the whole school community and the men mental health in the whole school community. And one thing that's been notable about the COVID-19 pandemic is a lot of schools and, and education both went online, but also necessitated a lot more intensive and direct coordination between parents and schools than they usually have in kind of routine school operations. And that, of course, came with a, a mental health cost and, you know, increase in stress and anxiety, but also like anything else in our society, inequities in the education system means that times of burden and stress are going to disproportionately fall on historically disadvantaged families. And so we reached out to uh, Dr. Alberto 
Ortega, who's an assistant professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. And he's done a lot of work on racial and ethnic disparities in educational outcomes, but he co-authored a piece in Educational Researcher on distance learning and parental mental health during the pandemic, where they look at, at changes in parents' mental health as schools moved online and what that kind of intensive management of, of their child's education did to mental health in the home. Right. And, and that's, a, I think, a critically important question, and, and their work really gives us some numbers on that, some evidence on that. Right, right. Right. Some, and it, it's a really interesting conversation that we'll get to after we talk to yeah, Travis. Great. Well, let's get Dr. Bristol on the phone. Okay. Our next guest is Travis J. Bristol. Dr. Bristol is an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley's Graduate School of Education, where he is a researcher. And uh, prior to heading into research, he was actually a student and then a teacher in New York City public schools, as well as a teacher educator with the Boston Teacher Residency Program. Thank you so much for making time to come on the podcast today, Travis. Thank you, Seth, for the invitation. Yeah, I've long been a fan of your work, and I'm really happy that you were yeah. able to come on. You and I have some research areas in common. We've both done some research on the benefits of having a diverse teaching force. I have a book that recently came out with Harvard Education Press that we'll, we'll put a link to on the website, along with Constance Lindsay and Mike Hansen. Travis, I know you're editing a handbook that we'll also link to on the website if folks are interested in checking it out. And long story short, there's a huge mountain of evidence that students benefit from having teachers that look like them. And a diverse teaching force, a representative teaching force is a quality teaching force. And it's something that we should strive for in our schools. And a lot of our, our research has spoken to those issues. That's not the topic here, so I don't want to get hung up too much on that. But the reason that that's important is that the teaching force is not representative. The teaching force is about 80% white, while the student body is only about half white. And so there's a real lack of representation, a lack of teachers of color in the teaching force. And this is another area that you've done a lot of research on. How do we recruit and retain and support teachers of color? And the way that this is linked up to the issues of mental health in schools and teachers' mental health that we've been talking about a lot on this and previous episodes of, of this podcast is that teacher stress, teacher burnout is a very real problem, and that leads to attrition. That leads to exiting the profession. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about what do we know? This is an issue for all teachers, but particularly for teachers of color. What do we know about retention issues and the different pressures and stress that might lead to burnout and ultimately exiting the profession? Mm, yeah, particularly for teachers of color. Great question. So I think first it's important to place my response and the fact that teachers of color have higher rates of turnover when compared to their white peers into some context, right? Mm -hmm. Teachers of color choose to work in schools that have the most challenging working conditions, the schools that have been 
in which students are have been historically marginalized. So they choose to work there on one hand, and they are mm-hmm. tracked into those kinds of schools because of bias in the hiring process. So because they are tracked and they choose to work in those places, these schools that have been historically under-resourced, those schools push them out like they push out the children and the children of color who are in those places. And so we know this to be true of all teachers, that teachers leave their principals, not their students, but because mm-hmm. we but because we place teachers of color and because teachers of color are placed and are working in the most challenging schools they have higher rates of turnover so i think it's it's important to not for this to be understood that it's not something unique to teachers of color right just by them being people of color right. it's because of the conditions in which they are teaching that exactly. that that influences why they have higher rates of turnover when compared to white teachers right and so if you look in a particular under-resourced school, there's not going to be a difference in turnover between white and black teachers. I would say generally. Uh, yeah. I, I would say on on average, but because teachers of color right. are right concentrated. Are more that, likely. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where this mental health discussion comes in, because if you're working in an under-resourced school, if you're working in a unsupportive school or with unsupportive administrators, if you're working in a very challenging environment where you have a lot of external factors that complicate your job, that's naturally going to lead to burnout and fatigue and and possibly leaving the profession. Correct. 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 Absolutely. And so do you want to dig in a little bit more to why does this happen? What yeah. are some, some examples of yeah. the challenges that teachers in these schools face who, like you said, are disproportionately teachers of color? Absolutely. So, you know, so some of the, the mechanisms that, that they begin to explain why teachers of color have higher rates of turnover, one, I, so I, it is the, the working condition. So, for example, I did a study many years ago on black male teachers, and I, and I looked at the experiences of black male teachers who were in schools of who were in schools where there were three or more black men and i compared mm-hmm. those schools to schools that had just one black male teacher and what i found mm-hmm. was that schools that had larger numbers of black male teachers right were tended to be schools that had been historically failing they were shut down they were reopened again with the hopes that just maybe right hiring more black men that these people could become superheroes but what what also happened in those schools was that the school district just hired these black male teachers without providing them with the necessary support so they were novice so these were also younger teachers so they were novice teachers mm-hmm. and they also had a novice principal and then there were also students who had come to school with historical trauma and the school lacked guidance counselors, social workers. And so these mm-hmm. teachers were tasked with making bricks without straw. And these these teachers talked about the great frustration, the great commitment that they had to their students, but the tension mm-hmm. that with their principals. So one story that I share from my research is the third-year teacher talks about how during the administration, while he was giving the state exam at the end of the year, Students are sitting down, taking the test, and an an administrator comes to his door and asks if all the cell phones had been collected. He says yes. The administrator, a woman of color, says uh, she did not believe him. And so during the middle of the test, the administrator begins to stop and frisk 
she begins to pat students' backpacks to see if, wow. if, they, if they had any cell phones. And, the, and the, this novice teacher, this black male teacher said, we can't treat our students like a prison. This isn't a prison. Mm-hmm. And, and he's done. And so he leaves because he did not believe that he was teaching in a place where his principal could support him or trusted, yeah. could support him and, and, and uh, trusted him right, to do his work. That's a, a wild and very disheartening story. Yeah, but all too It's common. also the kind of thing, yeah, right. I should also say, in some of the other episodes, we've talked a lot about numbers and, and administrative data, but that's the kind of thing that doesn't show up in an Excel file or a spreadsheet. Yes. That's the kind of thing that shows up in serious qualitative research and, and ethnographic research. And and that's another reason I've always enjoyed your and appreciated your work because you you uncover those those sorts of things that are in in this case quite troubling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I think that you know, I think that your work clearly identifies the patterns, right, and some of these causal relationships. Mm-hmm. And we also need to understand the mechanisms, and that's exactly. why the qualitative work becomes very helpful. Yep. And that is a great segue to the most important thing I wanted to talk about is how do we fix this? How do we make mm. things better? Yeah. And it's critical, you know, if we're going to devise policy, if we're going to change management practices, and, and, and if we're going to do things to make things better for teachers and ultimately for students, we need to understand the mechanisms. And yeah. so how do we break the cycle? How do we make the job more attractive and safe and enjoyable for the teachers of color and all teachers that already work in our schools? Hmm. So, you know, I, I think first, when I talked about teachers of color being concentrated in the most historically marginalized schools, that yes, there are mm-hmm. many people who want to work in these schools. And in this season of racial reckoning in this country, we also have to recognize, like Diva Pager has helped us, the late Diva Pager has helped us uncover bias in the hiring process outside Mm -hmm. of outside of teaching that that also happens in teaching. So we have to one recognize that we can't track or place people of color in the most challenging schools, that we also have to reframe this idea that, yes, ethno-racial match is important, but Joe Biden's grandchildren need to have teachers who look like me, just like my children need to have teachers who look like me in this diverse, Mm -hmm. flat, and and interconnected country. So I think that, that, that by also beginning to reframe who benefits, right? Who are the people who benefit from having a teacher of color? Yep. That that begins to open up the range of schools that teachers of color have access to that can then con- begins to create the many conditions and likely that they'll stay. So that that's one piece. I think that this idea, this this reframing and seeing educator diversity as a democratic good, right? The second piece, I think, is that we in this country, you know, rightfully so, have spent a great deal of time on teachers and teaching. We have not yet and are slowly beginning, I think, in this moment in educational research, I think, to be turn our attention to leaders and leadership. Hmm. And because principals are the ones who create the conditions for high quality teaching and learning, we need to really pay more attention to the kinds of support that sports that we're giving to 
training principles and then the ongoing support induction that we're giving to novice principals Mm -hmm. who are working in the most challenging schools so that those novice principals have the tools, the strategies, and, and the resources to support the high concentration of novice teachers of color in their building. So I would say that that Mm -hmm. is also another way that we can think about addressing or creating or tending to the mental health of teachers of color. Yeah. And that's exactly, we had a a sixth grade social studies teacher from Massachusetts on the podcast the other day. and, And that exactly lines up with what he said when he was talking about like, what do teachers need to be Mm. supported. And the number one thing was supportive leadership, empathetic leaders who empathize with what teachers do and deal with on the day-to-day in the classroom, for sure. Absolutely. So the last thing that I want to ask about is you've been doing your research and you've been thinking about these various issues about supporting teachers for several years, well before the COVID-19 pandemic. I know we've all heard, personally experienced and witnessed how the pandemic has exacerbated, as well as as shown a light on, a lot of these existing racial and socioeconomic disparities and mental health concerns in general. How, if at all, has the pandemic sort of changed your thinking about these issues? Or, you know, maybe even it's just like, it's just made it even more important. I don't know. But but I'm curious to hear what you what you know, how you've been mm. thinking about about this in your work. Yeah. So I would say that for white teachers on average, this is the first time in their lives, clearly. Well, for white teachers, this is the first time that they have found themselves teaching in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. For black teachers they have been teaching in a pandemic and have found themselves teaching in a twin pandemic. And so I think that there's some important lessons for white teachers Mm -hmm. who have found themselves teaching in a pandemic that they can learn from black teachers and teachers of color more broadly who have found themselves previously teaching in a pandemic. And, And that is really this idea of how people of color teachers of color, have attended to their mental health while working in a pandemic. And for teachers of color, that has been the creation of these professional learning communities and these affinity group spaces that happen outside of the outside of their day-to-day work, but that attend to the social Mm -hmm. context in which they find themselves teaching. And so I I think, and that being in these safe spaces, these affinity spaces where they can attend to their mental health, where they can remind themselves because other Mm -hmm. teachers are telling them that they're not crazy because they too are experiencing anti-Black racism in their school, but they're gaining some tools that these professional learning communities can, can serve as a can be helpful for, I think, the profession more broadly around how do you attend yeah. to your mental health in the midst of a pandemic? So I, I think I know what you mean, but I, I want to let you be more explicit about the pre-existing pandemic yeah. sure. that teachers of color were have been dealing with their whole lives and certainly their whole, their whole career. Yeah, I mean, so... Um, or maybe you want me to say what I think you mean first. Well... I'm happy to, to, to share and then clearly you, you can push. I mean, you know, I remember when I was teaching in New York City, maybe this was 2005. Okay. To about to 2006. And I remember turning on the TV and seeing 
black people on their roofs because a hurricane had hit. And I thought, Mm -hmm. I quickly understood that because they were black, because they were poor, they were allowed to die, right, in this hurricane, mm-hmm. they, 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 that the country, this country did not come to, to, to their rescue, that, that their mm-hmm. black bodies, right, were somehow expendable. I remember supporting teachers. That's Katrina. Katrina, yes. Sorry, yes. Yeah. I'm talking okay. about Hurricane Katrina. Hur- I, Hurricane Katrina, right. Yeah, and I think that was 2005 or six. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I remember the countless number of black people, men and women who have been killed because we've seen the pictures. There have many, been many more mm-hmm. who had not been killed. But black people have right. been living in, in a country where they have been routinely targeted by the state and left to die by the hands of the state at larger numbers, and so much so that it would constitute, many would say, a pandemic. And so they have, so, yeah. so, so black teachers have had to, as I had to, find some way to both hold and express my own rage that black people, I think a thousand black people were died in Katrina. And mm-hmm. of course, Kanye West's famous lines as George Bush doesn't like black people. But I had to find a way to then attend to my own mental health and then show mm-hmm. up into a class and work with children of color right. who turn to me to try to understand how is it, Mr. Bristol, that our country could let people like us die in this. So, so I have been, I started teaching in 2004, teaching in the midst of a pandemic. And this, mm-hmm. for, for many black teachers and many Latinx teachers, the COVID-19 has been the second or twin pandemic. Right. You describe that very well. And that's what I thought you meant. I, I was going to say, sort of generically, there was a pre-existing pandemic of anti-black racism. And I think your example of, of Hurricane Katrina is important because even if you think there's maybe like an underlying level of of racism that's always there and and always present but certain events make it spike like seeing the video uh, of Katrina well i think that's a very important thing to think about for school leaders and policymakers and teachers of all backgrounds to take seriously and try to think about as the pandemic, that the COVID pandemic was really, like you said, a second pandemic mm. that made a lot of privileged people realize how hard it is for less privileged people. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, thanks for that. To try to end on a maybe a, a more optimistic and uplifting note, if, if that's possible, do you see or envision any lessons that have been learned from this dual pandemic that might lead to positive change? As it relates to teachers' mental health? Well, I mean, as, as it relates to, to really anything. I mean, yeah. I, I think we got, you know, yeah. we got pretty deep there in a very general way. I mean, so, you know, even for the country as a whole, for the public school system as a whole, or more narrowly for teachers and classrooms and specifically teachers in classrooms that are serving historically marginalized communities? Yeah. So I I would say that what has come out, I think, of teachers and students living in this COVID-19 pandemic 
has been, mm-hmm. I think, that the realization on the part of the field of education that the urgency around attending to students' social and emotional learning. I think that for many years, this idea of social emotional learning was this sort of like throwaway idea that that the focus should really be on helping children learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic. Mm-hmm. And there was never really any space to understanding the importance of loving children. And I think that, that, that what this pandemic has really shown the field, teacher prep and folks who are working to support in-service teachers, is that the urgency of building the capacity of pre- and in-service teachers to, under, to teach them how to love children. This is not my line, but uh, someone, uh, some researcher I remember quoting had quoted a student who said, you can't teach me if you don't love me. And I think given that, mm-hmm. that, that students and primarily students of color have experienced the brunt of this pandemic, that they are returning to mm-hmm. schools where their, set, where their social and emotional health are really on, on life support. And so that mm-hmm. and the implication of that is that we need to think about how we support teachers to create yep. the conditions to support the social and emotional learning of children. And really fundamentally, for me, that means helping teachers learn how to love the children in their classroom, thereby creating the conditions where those children can then learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I, I would just add that to this piece around mental health, that in this rush to bring students back to school, I think there's been so much discussion around, like, how do we get schools open to bring students back, Mm -hmm. that we can't bring students back before we bring teachers back. And to bring teachers back, for me, means really attending to their mental health or people of color. We have to get them ready to be, we have to get them ready to be in the classroom. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, we have to spend some time helping them make sense of their own trauma and the trauma mm-hmm. that, that they experienced by seeing my sister, who is a middle school teacher in New York City, talked about seeing one of her students whose parents was a frontline worker. And so this, the middle schooler had to watch his younger sibling and have the younger sibling on his lap, middle schooler, while mm-hmm. he was teaching, while he was learning. And so for my sister, the, the pain of seeing your student really trying their best but also taking care of a right. younger sibling. I think that, that we need mm-hmm. space to provide teachers to process that before we then bring students right. back. Yeah. Well, first, just to respond to that, I, I really like the line, we can't bring students back until we bring teachers back. I think that's a great turn of phrase. The other thing that that really hits home for me, which I guess is something we've, I, maybe we've been alluding to some of this, but maybe we should make it explicit. There's a lot of students out there that have a really unfair burden of responsibility Mm. at a very young age, whether it's taking care of younger siblings when they themselves are are young children or preparing their meals when when they themselves are are worrying about where they're going to get their next meal as a young children. And that was happening for many children before the pandemic. And maybe teachers knew or maybe teachers had a guess about which students were, were faced with those burdens but the other thing that virtual learning and, and Zoom did was that it opened up a literal camera into the household. Yes. And it, it removed all doubt 
about what those burdens that, that kids were facing were. And it made it, for some teachers, it made it impossible to ignore or impossible to not see, yeah. you know, yeah. what those kids were doing, dealing with at home. And so to try to take a somewhat optimistic view or, or glass half full view is that making those things clear can maybe lead to, to real change. And hopefully we will get there. And I, I think there've, there's definitely been some, at least in some parts of the country and, and in some circles, I think there has been a real reckoning, not just with racial injustice, but also just with how important teachers are and what it means to be a good teacher and how critical they are and, and how undervalued they are many times. Well, that's a, a very poignant and hopefully optimistic note to end on. I've been talking with Travis Bristol. Dr. Bristol is an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley's Graduate School of Education. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to us and sincerely thanks for, for opening up and talking with us about these personal personal reflections you've had. Thank you, Seth, for the invitation. And now we're going to switch over to a conversation with Dr. Alberto Ortega. So we asked Professor Alberto Ortega to join us on the podcast to provide an overview of mental health in school communities generally, and also with regards to teachers and parents coping with COVID-19 and its related impacts on communities. Dr. Alberto Ortega is an assistant professor at the Paul H. O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University in Bloomington. He's a wide-ranging set of research topics from risky behavior and education to inequities in experiences with law enforcement. He recently co-authored a study in Educational Researcher, a top academic journal for research in the field of education, in which he and his colleagues looked at how parents' mental health conditions responded to suddenly being placed in the role of teachers during COVID-19 school closures. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Professor Ortega. We're happy to get your thoughts on mental health in schools. Oh, thank you for having me on. I think the setup of your paper is super interesting because you use parents as kind of your focal point and use it to think about what happens when these kind of non-professional teachers suddenly have to take on the role and tasks of being a teacher through you know, remote learning as, as, a, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So first, walk us through a, a bit of the setup of your study. You know, where does the data come from? What's the sample that we're looking at? And how do you measure mental health? Yeah. So the data comes from uh, this National Representative Survey, the National Panel Study of COVID-19. So this was designed by researchers at a few universities at UCLA and the University of New Mexico and at Arizona State. And kind of was supposed to track the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the American people. And they had really, so the survey was pretty much done before the economists, such as myself, on the paper came along. Um, yeah. They had great questions in there already about mental health and the political climate at the time. However, a few of us on the paper were given the opportunity to add some questions on the outgoing second wave of the survey. And we mainly added questions about related. So we had like a limited spot because, you know, there were a lot of questions. And when you're running a survey, right. you don't want to do too many questions because you want the respondents to answer them. So we mainly added questions related to employment status and the labor market. But towards the end of the process, we had a room for just a couple more questions. And given my interest in education and the fact that I think school districts were sending everybody home to learn from home, 
we were able to sneak in a few questions about schooling in that second wave of the survey, one of them being whether the survey respondent's child, if they had one, struggled with uh, the distance learning format that they were experiencing in their district. And I think you asked about mental health. We, unfortunately, you know, this is all surveys are, we had to kind of rely on self-reported responses to mental health. So questions right. about feeling anxious or worried or feeling down or feeling depressed, having trouble sleeping, like within the last couple of weeks. And so we relied kind of on those questions to, to kind of compose a measure of mental health, but also we looked at each question individually in the analysis. And these kinds of, of indexes are often how epidemiologists just generally study population level mental health. So I think it's it's useful to have kind of a confirmed, even you know, even though it's self-reported and there are yeah. obvious caveats that it's still great that you guys were able to get a nationally representative sample using pretty robust indices of, of mental health that are commonly used. And so what do you find in the paper? What how how were parents reacting to this new online learning modality and suddenly having to, to be teachers themselves? So I will say, I don't know if we, and remembering now, I don't know if we intended on linking, you know, struggling at home with mental health. The mental health questions were there and we just added a few education questions. This happened to be yeah, one of them. Yeah, right. And in kind of just surveying the data, I noticed that roughly half of the survey respondents reported, like if they had a child, half of the, the survey respondents reported that their child was struggling with distance learning. And I found that pretty interesting, like half of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, oh, there's some maybe good variation here. So what we find is parents who we call, you know, in the paper, proxy educators, but children who struggled with the remote learning or distance learning format, they reported elevated levels of mental distress. And what's interesting is that you would say, well, that's kind of, maybe that's obvious if you think about it once you, okay. But what's interesting is that the disparity kind of in mental health across you know, struggling versus non-struggling is consistent across a lot of that characteristics that you would suspect would confound the results. So including income, right. number of children, the days and school closures when states were, were closing down and doing social distancing. So that kind of was, was pretty interesting as well. And I always, you know, when talking about this, I always want to note the caveat, this is not a paper where we're deeming that this is a causal relationship. You know, there could also be reverse causality, right? It could be that right, uh, the, the other way around, right? That students are struggling because their parents have mental, some type of mental health issue or mental illness. But even so, I think it's still an interesting relationship. Right. Even if that's the case. Right. In fact, even in the reverse causality context, what this suggests is if a teacher, for instance, has mental health problems that are unobserved, that parents might not be aware of, or even the teacher themselves might not be self-aware of they might be feeling anxious but not managing it well, that can have spillover effects, right, where the student then struggles. Uh, so I think even the reverse causality story is is compelling and interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. So that's why I wasn't too concerned about that because I'm like, either way, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. And what are your thoughts on on what we can kind of learn from this about teachers generally, but then even in a kind of non-pandemic circumstance? What are the kind of lessons that we can maybe infer from the results of your analysis? Even though it's correlational, yeah. how do you think about broader kind of interpretation of this? So one, I think, you know, even though the survey was done kind of during the height of the, the former height of the pandemic, 
Right. Um, <laughs> and although this you know, pandemic like this comes around once a century, there are other circumstances in which students may need to learn from home. You know, you have natural disasters. Some school districts offer virtual learning options. So this is right. something to keep in mind. And I think there is not a lot, but there is some research on teacher burnout. But there's even fewer research or work on kind of the parents' role and their mental health and how that works in relation to their students' schoolwork. So I think right. that the paper can kind of serve as an impetus for examining the role of parents' mental health on their child's success. I mean, if so kind of in a research context, I mean, if we're thinking about schools, I think that, you know, what can schools do? They maybe consider surveying parents to see what their struggles are or seeing what the best way to communicate with them is. There's still an access to healthcare problem in the U.S. You know, we have, what, what is it, right. 30, roughly 30 million uninsured Americans. You know, and this gets magnified when you talk about mental health, given the stigma surrounding counseling and mental illness. There's well right. over well over 40 million Americans who've reported mental illness. You might want to check that, that number, uh, but it's over that number. So I think maybe normalizing, seeking help if needed, providing mental health services to parents may also be helpful. You know, I'm not too familiar with the intricacies of school counseling, but I'm not sure how often the parent or family is considered as a part of that equation. Right, you know? right. And I don't know if that, I mean, again, it's, I say that it's tough because of the whole resource question, right? I know we, you know, as a country spend almost more than every other country per student, but so that it's a problem wanting to spend more, but I do think that additional resources in this context may help. Right, right. Well, and especially part of the, equation, and and this is something that you hear regularly from administrators of schools and teachers, is that there's just a lot of expectations placed on schools because they become the interface for a lot of different social safety net programs, in part because our other programs don't have the kind of regular contact that schools have. And this is a circumstance in which, because there's regular contact with parents at schools, there actually is perhaps an efficiency in just building in a mental health component to those to those interactions. No, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think I think things are changing now for the better as far as talking about mental health and it becoming more of a an acceptable thing to do. So maybe in the future this is something that right, we consider right. not only for the student, but also again for the parent and it doesn't have to be you know, there's a stigma around like social workers or something like that. It doesn't have to be that right. extreme. It could just be something where the parents are brought into the to the fold. And I know, you know, there are things, you know, parent-teacher meetings and things like that, but maybe in a more conscious way. Right. Yeah, in a more conscious right. way, like, okay, let's examine. We know teachers can get burnt out, but what's happening at home as well? Right. And one thing that I think is, is noteworthy with your findings is that it actually syncs up nicely with some other survey results uh, of teachers during the pandemic. And one of the things that surveys of teachers have found is that the teachers that have struggled or reported frustration or, or job dissatisfaction are often also reporting struggling with online learning. In other words, there seems to be a mental health effect that comes from watching a student that you're trying to teach online struggle with the material. Like people want and, to be good at teaching. And we don't, I don't believe we include that in the paper, but the, we did have some questions in the survey about the format, for instance, online strictly, whether you got textbooks, some other resources. And yeah, definitely you do see that online there is that, there's a struggle there because I think there is yeah. kind of this adjustment 
And I mean, you can't blame them. I mean, it's kind of everything was happening so fast. Most school districts probably or they weren't ready. They weren't ready to kind of go online full time. Absolutely. And what do you think about the fact that these are parents? And for a lot of parents, they don't often see their student interacting with material. And so they're, they're not often exposed to watching their kids struggle with something, right? And so some parents are, but maybe not at this kind of like granular level of teaching from home. And so I, I wonder how you think about that just in terms of this kind of sudden exposure to your child struggling with material. No, yeah, I can, I can imagine it's more of like a, well, this is different. <laughs> you know, what do you do yeah. in this instance? Do you, and that's, that's another thing also at, at home, you know, Parents, which is the paper we call again, proxy educators, they're not teachers, right? They don't, and they're not really educators. So they might not be able to pick up on the cues of, you know, the subtle cues of your child struggling or not getting it or studying in the most effective manner, whereas teachers might be able to quickly point those things out or identify those things. So, yeah, that definitely is something also that may lead to the stress. You know, you don't really know how to... You know, you don't have the pedagogical tools to, to really get in there and, and help your, your right. child you know, learn. So I think kind of a, a set of closing thoughts, when we're thinking about kind of the particulars uh, around parents that are maybe anxious or stressing about, you know, their students' struggles academically, what's something that a school principal or teachers can consider trying to do to mitigate that a little bit? You know, you mentioned maybe surveys or check-ins. Is there something else that you think maybe principals could build in as something that they could do to help support, provide support for parents? Yeah. So not in this paper. So we're, we're working on a separate paper that asks, so on the, so this paper is based on the second wave of the survey. So there was a third wave of the survey where we got to sneak in again, another couple questions related to education. And the, the questions there were about how do you think your school did or your school district did and do you trust them moving forward that they'll you know kind of cater to your child's educational needs in the best way and we find as far as for the performance how did they do during the pandemic what really seemed to matter the most after you know controlling for a lot of um, demographic characteristics was communicating with your teacher that seemed to matter the most more than you know giving them like uh, electronic devices communicating with your teacher definitely and to some extent, your principal, but communicating with your teacher seemed yeah. to matter a lot. So things like automated calls or emails didn't seem to matter as much, but definitely communicating with with the teacher matters. So I think keeping the lines of communication open, um, I know that probably adds, you know, it's even more strenuous for teachers, but I think communication probably matters in collecting data. I know I mentioned again surveys, but just seeing what's going on at yeah. home. I think yeah. having the data and then maybe being able to look at it might give you an insight on what to do because, you know, districts, may, you know, they're heterogeneous, so they, they may have different needs. Yeah. I, figuring out ways, I think, to build pipelines of communication for parents. I mean, even maybe setting up some kind of system in which teachers can hold very brief workshops for parents in a situation yeah. like this for how to help them guide their kid through homework if the parent is not doing the direct teaching or to help them improve pedagogically in situations where the parent is is kind of a supplemental teacher. Yeah, and I think, again, that's where the resources come in. Because from a teacher's perspective, I'm thinking, well, I have to teach the parents and the students. But I think you're right. Like, right. given the resources, having small workshops, you know, or online communities, if that's possible, where they can yeah, assist the parents in 
teaching them right. the tips and tricks to, to, to effective teaching or kind of how to hold the fort down. Meanwhile, they're at home. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's going to be and end up being kind of a, a key thing for, for schools to think about as they get a lot of the supplemental money from, you know, the CARES Act and a lot of the COVID relief money. In some ways, districts, even poorer districts are flush with cash currently. It's all short term cash. So they got to think about how to spend it wisely. Yes. So that's kind of one of the things that kind of came about from this pandemic is states weren't in as, in as bad as shape as we thought they were going to be. And definitely, yeah. So I think how to spend the money and like you said, maybe we'll see some interesting natural experiments arise that we can use to learn yeah. for the future. Yeah, right. And inform the next <laughs> the next pandemic response. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. All right. Do you have any closing thoughts, things that you've been, been thinking about, about mental health recently or things that you think would be a, a kind of a good takeaway from, from this conversation? No, I think that the biggest takeaway for me is I'm seeing more you know, I'd like to see just more research looking at the parents' mental health and how that plays a role in their child's schooling. And, you know, not only schooling, you know, how much time they, they invest, and not also not only the child's academic outcomes, but the kind of what's going on at home, what those intricacies, what's happening. Um, right, would be right. Yeah, yeah and, and maybe how parental mental health factors into the, the very behaviors that they, that they engage with scholastically, with their, or academically with their children. Yeah. It was absolutely wonderful having you on the, on the show and we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you.